Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you've just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck, We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. So here's something I was thinking about while watching the movie we're covering on today's show. Film history really is full of troublesome hotels. A few of them we've even covered on this very show, from The Haunted Overlook in The Shining to the labyrinthine unsettling Airbnb in Barbarian. I'm talking about the kinds of places that make me vow never to complain about a premiere in ever again. This week, revered writer-director Kitty Green released a thriller that adds to that long list with the sublime The Royal Hotel, an at times unbearably tense exploration of gender and toxic masculinity set in rural Australia. On today's episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows, hosted by me, Al Horner, Kitty stops by for a spoiler breakdown of this incredible movie in which two young women in need of money check into a dilapidated pub in a remote mining town. What happens next, as the line is blurred between drunken boys will be boys and truly dangerous behaviour, is impossible to tear your eyes away from, beautifully written and impeccably directed. In the conversation that you're about to hear, Kitty tells me about her own family connections to the mining town pub culture depicted in the film, which was co-written with Oscar Redding. We unpack what's going on in the heads of the film's two leads, Hannah and Liv, as they encounter some of the community's many microaggressions towards them. She also breaks down the Royal Hotel's connections to her last movie, The Assistant, and what the two movies combined express about the epidemic of male violence towards women. Please be sure to check out the film before listening, as this episode has more spoilers than you can shake a taxidermied snake at. And also be sure to check out our Patreon page if you're a fan of Script Apart and want to help us continue to grow. 
For the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you can get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, video content, and the chance to put your questions to upcoming guests. What's not to love? Patreon.com forward slash script apart is the address for you if you'd like to get involved. All right, that's the admin out of the way. Let's check in to the Royal Hotel, shall we? This is the wonderful Kitty Green discussing the first draft secrets of a movie that makes the Bates Hotel look like the Ritz. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Kitty Green, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Huge congratulations on The Royal Hotel. This is a film that crafts so much tension out of one tinderbox location, this pub in a remote Australian mining town. I know your grandfather owned a pub in regional Australia, Kitty. Was that a place you you visited? And if so, what memories of that place or even stories passed down in the family do you think helped inform this great film? Oh, I'm not sure. So my dad grew up in the pub, above, sleeping above it the way the girls do in the film. But I, it was long gone before, by the time I was born. So we still would go back on like family vacations to visit it. Do you know what I mean? And so, as, so I, I spent a bit of time just hanging out there, but I've never been kind of, I feel like most of the experiences I'm drawing from are not from that place. Do you know what I mean? They're from other times in my life and other, you know, dirtier, grimier <laughs> places I've been to. <laughs> Well, that does kind of lead me into my next question, I suppose. Like the, the aggression of the male drinking culture that this film observes just feels so so well actualized. It feels so so real. I feel like I've seen it. D- did you work in pubs when you were younger or, you know, when you talk about sort of, uh, yeah, being able to bring your own kind of experience, your own observation to this, where's that coming from? Because as I say, it does feel very authentic. Every one of the microaggressions towards Hannah and Liv in this film versions of things I think many people will will have experienced firsthand in, in pubs and bars. It's funny. I I never worked in a pub. I tried to. I got the, you know, the responsible service of alcohol certificate, but I just never got hired by anyone. <laughs> I was a kid. I don't think anyone wanted me working there. But um I think I don't know, it was it kind of comes from more just my own just being in these spaces and sort of observing them. And I worked with a co-writer, Oscar Redding, and he spends a lot of time in pubs himself. He lives in regional Australia. So I think I think between the two of us, we were able to kind of kind of throw it together between what we've seen and heard and stories we've heard, but, and the doc and a documentary that it, it's inspired by, which also is a big part of it, to be honest as well. Um, when I made another, my last movie, the assistant was very specifically research-based and very much, I conducted, you know, uh, nearly a hundred interviews for that, but this one, I never felt like I needed to. I felt like I, I've, I've been in those spaces. I get how they work. I get how they operate. And, um, there's enough of little stories from my own life that I could bring in from just being a patron, you know, in a place like that. It struck me while watching the Royal Hotel that um, the geography of a pub is incredibly apt for a story like this. Like the layout of a bar, the way it kind of curves around means that our two characters are surrounded at all times by these leering men. They're on this like island amidst them. And uh, that's such a great visualization of what I think the film speaks to in a broader way, like the swarm of unwanted male attention that women often have to endure. Was that an interesting thing to be able to play with? Like, uh, I'd love to hear about how you approached the space of the, the pub of the Royal Hotel as almost a storytelling tool itself. Yeah, I mean, so the first thing is this this documentary and that we watched or originally that kind of inspired the whole thing had a U shaped bar like that, and I I just. 
I felt like that would be a great, I mean, it's sort of just as, as a someone thinking through what this is going to look like. I just, even the through line of being able to see past someone, past the girl at someone behind, you know, just kind of layered that kind of space in a way, in a way. So we built the, um, the set. It was actually a built, the interior was built. We built in, in a studio. So we were able to really control that space and kind of think about it, but it was, it was in this, it was scripted that way, to be honest. It really was always a U or kind of an L um, because we wanted that depth, but um, I'm not sure sort of how on a screenwriting perspective to describe it. It was because I feel like there's got these layers of it, which is sort of the dialogue kind of comes first and the bits and pieces and then trying to figure out where people sit and the kind of the actual design of the place kind of is almost like an, the next layer, like kind of once the script's done. I knew that you, I knew the layout. I knew where everyone was sitting when we started. I knew where they were all, where they would be and who was in what corner. And I think that was kind of already in my head as we were writing it. I kind of knew the lay of the land a little bit. So I clearly had pre-visualized in some way this, this space, but weirdly Oscar had, I didn't really discuss it with him and he seemed to have it in his head too. So I'm not sure. So we've alluded a couple of times now, Kitty, to this documentary, which I wonder if it's best described as like the inspiration for the film. Like the Royal Hotel is not an adaptation of this documentary from the sounds of things. You took the skeleton of the story and then you added your own fictionalized elements. Can you talk me through that? Like uh, what you inherited from that doc versus what you invented of your own accord? Yeah. I mean, it's a film about two Scandinavian women who are working in an outback town. They run out of money. Someone steals their money, I think. And then they end up working in a... Uh, Outback pub and just sort of dealing with it. It's a very bleak film. It's very dark and it's um, a lot darker than our film. Weirdly, whenever everyone says it feels really dark, I'm like, you shouldn't see the documentary. <laughs> um, but it's sort of, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I was immediately attracted to kind of the dynamics, the power dynamics, the gender dynamics, the kind of the, the thing about, I mean, the fact that they were foreign and trying to figure out the culture was sort of something, the Australian kind of drinking culture and the rules of that. And kind of saying no and standing up for themselves within that kind of system was interesting to me. Um, so that kind of became the inspiration. And then we took some of the bones, I guess the bones is right in that the general journey of them running out of money, arriving, getting the train there, landing there, kind of meeting the, the people. And there's some um, kind of similar, like uh, we have these two British women who in the uh, documentary, I think are Welsh uh, women who are having a great time when, when our heroes arrive and um, having a very different attitude towards the place than, than our leads. Um, so we had like, there's a few elements like that in there, but we didn't, we didn't take any of the dialogue. We just sort of, sort of those sort of moments were kind of part of it. And then also was a birthday scene that I think was also in the documentary, but the rest is, um, the rest is our own. So it was sort of something we really played around with and just sort of figured out what we were doing and saying uh, with that as the jumping off point, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned our heroes there, Kitty. The uh, The film follows Hannah and Liv, these two backpackers who agree to work in this pub in the middle of nowhere because they need money. Can you tell me about constructing these characters, not just as compelling characters to sit in a backpacker thriller, they're also characters who feel real and whose friendship feels real. But on a third level, like it seems that, you know, these these characters are also vessels for a conversation that you wanted to spark about how different women have different approaches for negotiating the inherent dangers of the spaces they pass through and the men that populate those spaces. So yeah, talk, talk to me about Hannah and Liv, how how you managed to construct these characters who who work on all three of those levels. Um, yeah, I mean, 
Well, what's interesting to us about the documentaries in one in the end, one of them leaves and one of them stays. And we thought that's sort of an interesting dynamic. What would make one of them leave and one of them one of them want to leave and one of them want to stay? And what would their how would they have to engage with this environment in order for that to be kind of the outcome, I guess? And so it became about and I was looking at I've been backpacking a lot at night with friends and I often notice that when you have travel in a pair, one person has to like look at the map and worry about what time they're going to get home and how, how much money's in the account and all that sort of stuff and be more cautious. And the other one is free to drink a little and be a little looser and be a little hungover <laughs> and not worry too much about the schedule. And that felt like pretty natural, a natural sort of dynamic. And that, so that worked. And then, um, and then, yeah, then, I mean, people are saying, I, I, I like the discussion around, someone said to me recently that, there are two ways of responding to trauma. One is like drinking your way through it in order to deal with it. And the other one is being really cautious and really overly kind of, you know, worried about, or, you know, um, engaging, you know, assessing the environment for threats in that way. Um, so that kind of breaks down that way. And then, which is kind of a general thing, but just in writing it, just, I don't know, it became a bit more fluid than that. And I didn't want it to be too binary in that way, but, um, yeah. Did you know from the earliest point that you wanted your characters to stay together, that there was something more powerful in your fictionalized version about them kind of retaining some solidarity and, and sticking through it? Well, actually the first draft had them one leaving and one staying. And then that became the second draft. The biggest change between the first and the second draft was, oh, they should come together in the end. So they need to split apart and then come back together. And how do we make that happen? And that felt like a better sort of structure um, for the narrative. And also it added sort of an extra, extra few beats in the, in the back end, which we liked. Um, so yeah, that was the trick. It was a bit of, um, yeah. And I think, I think it really helped. I think the original draft had one of the British girls coming back and getting into trouble. And so it was kind of bringing someone else back, whereas this one kind of let, let our two leads split apart in that way. And was much else different in that first draft or, or was that the kind of main change? Uh, they were Scandinavian in the first draft, to be honest. And um, that was something we had to change because technically on a financing, from a financing perspective, it's a lot easier to finance the movie if they're American than it is if they're Scandinavian. Like if they're Scandinavian, it's a foreign film. As crazy as that sounds, if your budget goes up, <laughs> if it's an American film versus a foreign film. So it was like a weird thing, but um yeah, I always assumed Julia would play it, but I think she, I would thought she, there'll be one will be Swedish, one will be Danish. They won't be, they will speak together in English and so it'll be fine and they can speak pretty, you know, that's not like they need some, a heavy accent like Scandinavians often can't really tell where they're from. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a big change to make them American. I didn't want them to be American. So in fact, they never say they're American in the script. They, they only make a joke. One of them makes a joke about being Canadian in the first scene and they run with the Canadian joke the entire way. And that was kind of my way of getting around having them be American and me not being kind of grumpy about it. I figured if we never mentioned it, they could technically from Scandinavia, who knows, you know? Um, so yeah, that's my little addition there. <laughs> that's interesting. So Liv as a character is much more likely to kind of uh, brush brush things off as a joke. She doesn't have the the kind of hyper vigilance that Hannah does, which which feels kind of true to life. I think all of my female friends have have different tactics for dealing with the kind of depressing inevit inevitability of toxic men approaching them on nights out and so on. Can you talk to me about like calibrating those responses? They're they're very close friends, but they do have these kind of 
differences in attitudes, differences in approach. And uh, that's kind of where some of the tension comes in the film, both between them and, you know, for us as an audience. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, um, once we we kind of figured that out, it, it was felt pretty natural. I don't know if it's something we had to really think of. It just sort of um, fell onto the page that way in a way. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think with Liv, I mean, it's a more Australian approach, which is to just ex- to be more accepting, to go with it, to laugh it off, to kind of, you know, assume. And also it's a lovely, it's a lovely kind of way to deal with something that's like not familiar, which is like to be accepting and to try and understand and try and, you know, um, and, and to see the good in all of it, which was, was, which was really wonderful. Um, so it was kind of nice to kind of write live that way and then have Hannah a little more cautious and trying, trying to be open and trying to be accepting, but just, kind of something happening it always that kind of puts her back up a little makes her a little unsure unsure or um so yeah it was a that was kind of the battle so Liv's seeing a certain set of events Hannah's seeing them the darker side of everything basically and so the two of them are on a kind of different journey even though they're in the same space and and once you had those two how did you go about forming the male characters because each of them kind of seems to speak to a different variety of toxicity perhaps um, they were probably, the girls felt, kind of felt like pretty an easy thing to figure out. It was like the guys were tricky because it was, I mean, it's about, they all have to feel different, but they all, it's, it's funny. It's, I feel like the kind of general rule is they're all trying to connect to these women. And I think their intentions are pure. Like they really just want, they love them and want to be close to them, but they're just failing for all different, in different ways, you know, like, um, whether that's sort of. Uh, Hugo Weaving's character Bill is like an alcoholic and can't handle his drink and kind of James Fraser who plays Teeth is can't handle his own aggression and can't handle you know just doesn't know what to do with his anger he crashes his car to kind of can't really um you know process things the way he that he should I guess um and then you know Maddie is the kind of guy that you meet at every backpackers the Aussie guy you know who's making dick jokes but is somehow still charming and enough that you kind of <laughs> oh mate forgive him for it you know so sort of figuring out I guess who they all were it took a minute but once we did that they I felt like even from the first draft the comments we got with it that they did feel even though they have similar names they people could tell the characters apart which I thought was a strength in you know in the script that they, each one felt different and each one felt like they had their own kind of, um, you know, failings, but also strengths and, and things like that. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you talk about them in, in quite a forgiving way, I suppose, because I, I sat through the film, you know, growing increasingly frustrated with each of these guys, because every time you think that maybe one of them is going to kind of do the right thing by Liv and Hannah, minutes later, you're let down. Like when Torsten tricks Hannah, well, sort of tricks Hannah into opening the door for Dolly inadvertently, when when Teeth beats Dolly up and for a moment you think he might simply have seen Liv in distress and decided to intervene, then a minute later he comes in raging about how he told Dolly that Liv was mine and you you kind of learn that that action wasn't from a place of heroism. It was from like, you know, feeling like he had some ownership over Liv. So yeah, it's it's interesting. It feels like you didn't have like, you. there, there isn't a judgment you impart upon these characters when you write them from the sounds of things, Kitty. 
Well, I mean, they don't all end up in a very good place, do they? But so ultimately, <laughs> I think there is. But I think in order to write them, we had to have a lot of love for them. In order to play them, the actors had to have a lot of love for them and had to be able to to create so they didn't just feel like villains, but felt fully fleshed out and human. I think all those discussions about had to be. Uh, they were a big part of it. It's like each of these actors brought a lot of brought a lot to these men, broken men. Um, and yeah, um, it's funny. It's being received in different ways. Americans see them as villains and can't see any of the lightness or warmth. And Australians see them as really warm. Like the first, they always say, "Oh, they're such <laughs> warm guys," and <laughs> which is wild um, to me. But it's yeah, it's been really interesting how this film plays uh, in different places. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm in Australia right now and I've been surrounded by people going, yeah, you know, the dudes are so lovely. I'm just kind of, that's where my head, maybe head back to America and figure out that they're villains. But yeah, um, it just, yeah, it plays very differently. There's a lot more laughs playing it here than when we were in the States. So yeah. 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 And the film's interesting from like a, a structural standpoint, you, you have these two characters who are constantly asking themselves the question, should we leave? Like with every microaggression, the, the two characters come up with different answers to that question, even increasingly as there's kind of, there's nothing really micro about the aggressions anymore. Can you tell me about like finding the pacing to that kind of gradual escalation that we see in the film? It feels like really well metered. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's, it was definitely in the screenplay. I mean, it's, and it's about, I was talking about it. It's like, it's like holding the air in the balloon. You kind of don't you want to let any air out. you got to get it so big that it's going to pop, you know? So it's about kind of, and so anything that kind of, anything that's over, it's too threatening. There's a point where there's a scene where Dolly has a snake and he saved, he gets the snake out of the room and saves the girls essentially. And originally it was written that he kills the snake. Like he stomps it to death. And it just felt like at that point, Hannah would have left, you know, there's no way she would have watched that and then stayed another night. So it's, it's always trying to play that line where no one ever crosses the line, but Jesus, they're really dancing on that line, like the entire time. And so it was trying to keep the behavior there became the challenge. And then, and then if it's there, then you can keep going and, you know, we can keep going because we're, oh, yeah, they haven't crossed the line yet. They haven't crossed the line yet. Gosh, they're close, but they haven't. And then you can kind of really build each time and play, but it is about, it's about keeping it sort of, adjust the right temperature, I guess, which is not just a job in the screenplay, but a bigger job sort of on set in terms of just lighting and just the way you kind of those shot construction to never make it feel like too much of a horror movie. It was something like pull it back. So it's not like just crazy that they're there, you know, it needs to be, <laughs> make sense that they haven't left, I guess. Hey everyone, this is Al. Just jumping in for a quick moment to tell you that support for this episode comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro. If you're a screenwriter looking for an intuitive way to pen that next great screenplay idea of yours, Arc Studio understands how you think and what you need to get in the zone and produce your best work. It has fantastic storyboarding features, its interface is miraculously distraction-free, and if you're one of those who has a writing partner, you're going to love their stress-free real-time collaboration tools, which are kind of similar to Google Docs. The software is being used by beginners and professionals alike, such as the team behind the Netflix show Arcane and David Wayne, the writer-director behind Wet Hot American Summer. Arc Studio offers a completely free version of the software, meaning that anyone anywhere can download it today and get writing, no matter their experience level. Or to unlock Arc Studio's full suite of amazing tools, 
you can get $30 off a pro subscription by heading to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. That address again, if you want to join the thousands of screenwriters who have already made the leap, it's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Dancing on the line is such a good articulation for it because, well, yeah, there is there is something interesting that happens here that kind of like kind of upends what we're used to seeing in the thriller genre, which is typically about, you know, things that do happen. But this is a film in which like there's this constant kind of build up towards a moment of danger for these characters. And then it just about pulls back right at the kind of moment of of potential threat. So we have that scene where Matty kind of grabs at Hannah's jeans and she tells him to go. And, and for a moment, he stands in the doorway and you wonder, is he going to go? And, you know, there's another moment where kind of Dolly stands at Hannah and Liv's door and you see his shadow beneath the doorframe. And that feels quite horror in its execution. But uh, in each of these situations, even the scene in which kind of Dolly kicks off in front of that couple celebrating their anniversary, it boils up and boils up. And then the situation kind of subdues and we're left as an audience with the kind of exhaustion of what could have happened. Can you talk to me about that component of the film and, and what maybe feels kind of truer to the experience of, of women like Hannah and Liv in, in the real world about that? Yeah, I mean, partly it was, I never wanted to include a scene. I never wanted to include any sexual violence. I didn't want to film it and I didn't want to watch it, to be honest. So like... There's a part of me that, that knew that we were going to do everything. We we're going to be almost there, but never get there. Um, with the idea that an audience sort of has that in the back of their mind and is sort of going there anyway. We don't need to show you that to, you know, for everyone to think that's probably where this is going to go. Um, and then it became about, well, look, I think uh, to me, it's like we're, we're looking at the kind, the kind of behavior that is the gateway or sort of entry point to, to that kind of to sexual violence. And the idea that if we can stop it a little earlier and prevent it from ever getting there, then we'll all be sort of safer in those spaces. So I think the, the idea that nothing in this movie crosses the line is great because I think the conversations after the movie, if they had raped someone, everyone can say, oh, that's not us. We wouldn't ever rape anyone. But mm. if they're just telling jokes and calling them names and sniggering at them and I think a lot of people have done that in pubs when they've been a little too drunk. And a lot of people then have to kind of look at their own behavior and go, oh, gosh, maybe I shouldn't have done X, you know. And I think that's the conversation I wanted to have is about that kind of general, like this larger kind of problem as opposed to something, you know, that, to really kind of making it about the violence. It's about everything leading up to that point. Um, so that kind of informs the way we sort of play with all those scenes and the way that works. And and again, like I was saying, it becomes about well, how much would be too much for Hannah. And I think with that Dolly scene where he's behind the door, I mean, it was too scary. In the end, we added a knock. He knocks a few times. And then I felt like that was something polite about him knocking that kind of diffuses it a little bit. And then he walks away. She has some time. She can diffuse. She can wake up in the morning. It's bright. It's sunny. Everyone's there. Some Carol's chopping wood. Maybe I'm okay, you know? So there's that kind of, and then Maddie apologizes and things move on. And so constantly playing around with just at the threat level, I guess, and whether she's crazy and like kind of living in her, am I paranoid? Am I crazy? Or is this place terrifying? Am I, is this going to kill me, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. Which is a lot of fun, I guess. And a lot of fun for her to play, I think, as well. Can you talk to me about constructing like the climax of the film? Like it, it manages to stay grounded and, and feel real while you also have Hannah running around with this axe. You know, the, it is such a crescendo. Was it, was it hard for you and Oscar to find 
that crescendo or did it spill out onto the page fairly easily? It's not a real, it's a weird crescendo because it's a drunken, messy crescendo. Do you know what I mean? It's never supposed to be this Tarantino explosive thing. It's, it's always supposed to be this sort of weak, pathetic. The, the violence in the movie is accidental. Like Maddie accidentally hits her with the axe. It's, it's all just a gross mess by the end. And there's something kind of pathetic about that, which we liked that we were like, this is where we've ended up. You know, it's not, it's, it's just someone, this, all these jokes and all these games and all this sort of bad behavior has led to this point where this kid doesn't really understand the rules and it's going to take it a little too far and, and fuck it up for everybody. You know what I mean? So that became kind of the journey. Um, which leads to some messy kind of gross fight between two men and a car crash and bits and pieces and the girls coming back together. And so it, it's messy, but that felt kind of realistic in a way that we were like, oh, that's sort of where, we, where it needs to go. Like it can't, we never wanted that. Again, we often get the criticism that, well, not often, but some of the geeks on the internet are mad that there's no um, boiling point. They say like it bubbles away and there's no boiling point. And I think they want the violence, like they're missing the violence and they want that to hit that crescendo point where it really explodes and someone gets attacked and, and we never give it to them. And I think people get mad by that, but I, I kind of love, I think that's the most provocative thing about the movie is it never gets there, but yet we're going to burn it down, you know, cause we've had enough, you know, which to me was like the statement that we were hoping to make. Yeah. Yeah. And you literally do burn it all down, which, you know, as, as we've talked about, this is a, a fictionalized ending. You want it to end on a moment of triumph that diverges from the ending in the documentary in which they separate. So can you, can you talk to me about like the decision to, to kind of end with these characters triumphantly walking away from this burning hotel? Why did it have to go down like that, Kitty? Uh, I mean, to be honest, I just made the assistant which was a film about the acceptance that the system is rotten. You know, the, in that end of that movie, she just, she sees the system's rotten. She's a part of it and she just, you know, accepts it. And that's, it's bleak. And I, I kind of, we, audiences walk, it would work out miserable. And so it was a really, it was a hard movie for people to stomach, I think. Um, and so in, in making this one, I was like, I can't make a second one where that's the message. Like that can't be what I do again and again is just say, hey, it's fuck guys. Like, what, what? no, there's not much we can do about it. <laughs> so there was something about taking a stand, which I knew was cheeky and I knew people would be um, upset by. And I knew not everyone's going to like it, but it felt important to me emotionally maybe and psychologically to do it Um and yeah, and so yeah, they're gonna they're gonna burn it down. No one crosses the line, but they are mad enough that they have decided to burn it down. So yeah, um, but yeah, it's it's a provocative one. I know for sure. You mentioned the assistant there. I like. I should ask about the kind of significance of this story as the story you chose to follow up the assistant with. Like, uh, I don't know the degree to which this was intentional, but but there's something about how the films sit side by side to each other that kind of makes it clear. The mistreatment of women, the kind of misogynistic conduct that leaves these characters and you know people in real life living in this state of like hypervigilance, that's kind of endemic. You, you can't mistake the assistant for a story about problems localized to one industry or even one country. The connective tissue between these two films set on kind of opposite sides of the planet demands that we understand that mistreatment as this kind of global problem. Was that quite intentional? Did you want to kind of follow up that film with something set in the in the real world, for for lack of a better phrase? I mean, I guess not in that. It's not. It's not really. I didn't have an agenda necessarily. It's mm. more just like, and it comes from a different. There's a lot of factors, and sometimes I think, was it my 
lack of confidence, which led me to kind of make something that's quite similar, like a quite a similar um, dynamic in the sort of Julia trying to figure out a, a system that she does, is not familiar with, that she's learning the rules of, that she's not sure is right, you know, that she thinks is rotten and, and isn't sure how to prove that, you know. And so I think both films kind of exist in that space and exist on her face in a lot of ways, in her facial sort of expressions as she's sort of taking all of this in. Um, and so that felt like it felt like a link that when I saw the documentary, I was like, oh, gosh, I could just throw Julia in that and I know how to make that and I know what I could do. And also it's a step up for me in terms of like just cast numbers, like 14 speaking roles in that scene and 60 extras and big sequences. And it's very alive and very loud. And the assistant was very quiet. So it feels something like there's a challenge in that. Um, but I guess, yeah, it just hit similar themes. These things I... they're there's spaces I've, I'm uncomfortable in and like looking at my own discomfort and what in those spaces is sort of something that interests, it makes me, I'm not, I guess I get curious by that and sort of try and unpack that and figure out how, if that is a message that other people can get on board with and by and, you know, and what, so I guess it kind of starts that way. It starts with sort of minor little things and then looking at my own life and times that dick insider joke was something that happened to me in a pub where someone asked me to get them a dick insider and so I was like I was like oh, okay I know that world I know how uncomfortable it is to be on the receiving end of that and what that felt how that made me feel and like and if I'm sure other people know have a similar thing and this will resonate I hope in some way so I don't know, you know and when you do that unpacking in these films kitty when when you take these discomforts and you put them up there on screen and i think in doing so allow other people to see experiences that they may have had echoed or exaggerated or you know just realized in some way that's useful to them they feel less alone there must be a huge catharsis in that right like uh i'd love to hear whether that's like a driving force in you as a filmmaker whether that's one of the reasons why you do what you do why that's a big component of these films no but i mean i think it helps i think it kind of cathartic and it helps me get i mean the assistant was me i had a lot to say about how sexist i thought the film industry was and i was able to get it all out not yeah. just get it out of me but show everyone in the film industry what it was <laughs> which was kind of amazing so I've gotten, gotten over that stuff. You know, like a lot of these things I'm like, Oh God, I struggle in that space. I'm glad I got to say something about it. You know? So I guess it's a, I come at, at it from a personal place where like, this is something I need to work through. It's cheaper than therapy to make a movie, I guess. But <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. There's a bit of that in it, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's also just looking at, I, I often respond to like reviews of films and the reviews about the assistants talked about, kind of what they that discomfort and things that and if I felt like oh if people if they, people think I can do that maybe I can keep doing that and keep playing around with that and figuring out microaggressions and what I'm interested in the close-up and amplifying these kind of tiny moments became became quite important to me I guess and probably will be something I keep doing in my work as I move forward. Yeah and, and can you tell me about the name Kitty because the Royal Hotel suggests something that this film, of course, does not deliver. There's something lavish and kind of monarchal about that name that is almost hilariously out of step with the very rundown place that the film centres on. Was it purely like the irony of that name that you loved or was there some kind of deeper resonance at all? Oh, no, literally, it's just the most popular pub name in Australia. Like they're oh, quite okay. <laughs> big, like, yeah, most, I think... I can't remember how, how much, but yeah, it definitely, there's a Royal hotel in every town basically, which is great. There's a, there's a Royal and a commercial generally. And so they're the two hotel names. 
And that, and that meant it's sort of this like Springfield, right? In the Simpsons, it's like it's every town. It's no not any particular state. It's not any particular place. It's everywhere. So that was to me really important. And we weren't kind of labeling it as a, the original. The documentary is called Hotel Coolgardie. It's about a specific place in Western Australia, and that's not what we were trying pointing to at all. Because this behavior can happen in Melbourne, and it can happen in London, it can happen anywhere. You know, it's sort of not specific so yeah to us it was generic enough but i love that it has that kind of royal the connotation of that is great like and it's so dilapidated and falling apart and you can sense at once at one point it was grand you know and it had was really this really upstanding institution that's since sort of fallen into financial ruin and um so all that was yeah fun to play around with but yeah and in terms of the writing process i think i read that you and oscar were on two different time zones so essentially it, it was a 24-hour round-the-clock writing process. You'd write, you'd go to bed, you'd hand it off, you'd wake up and he'd have made his changes. Can you can you tell me about that? That was actually great. And I recommend that if anyone is sending <laughs> a co-writer overseas. Um, but yeah, I would write all day and send it to him as before I went to... We'd have a Skype right before I went to bed and he was waking up in the morning and then he would... And he I'd send him the script and then he would... I guess ruin it all night is the way I like to look at it and change everything. And, and then I'd spend the next morning, I wake up and like try and wrestle back what I liked out of the, from my version. And so it was this kind of battle between him and I that led to kind of, I think, which works with the dynamic in the movie. It's like the girls versus the town. And that kind of battle was in the, in the writing process as well, which was fun. So yeah. Um, yeah, a bit of a fight over bits and pieces, but it was, it was a good way to do it to be honest. Cause yeah, it just kept changing. And every time I, was ready to say, Hey, it's good. It's done. I'd, I'd submit it to Oscar and he would rip it apart. And so immediately you're kind of questioning everything, just, which is fun. And were there things from the process of writing the assistant and kind of like enjoying the success that you did with that film that helped with the writing process on this? Were there lessons you'd learned from that project that you were able to apply here that made it easier? Anything like that? Hmm. Not really. <laughs> I mean, they're very different things. The assistant is a very specific, very simple idea. And it's the concept is everything with the assistant. It's it's one day in the life, it's tasks. I had all these index cards with the tasks, so cleaning, cleaning floor, emptying fridge, and that became kind of the scenes and the scenes were broken down that way with one big HR scene in the middle that was like a 12-page scene. And all the dialogue was there. No, it really wasn't anywhere else. And so this was a very different exercise in that, and that was one character basically throughout the whole yeah. thing. And here we have all these threads and these and co-leads and everyone's intertwining and moving. And, and it kind of, the film moves in different ways. It's not, it's sort of like this, you think we're going this way and then this character takes over and then that character takes over. And it kind of was this like larger kind of project in a way that was messier. And that felt like it worked, I guess, for what it is and the drunken kind of aspect of it. Um, but yeah, it was very, it was a very different process. I must say, I don't, I'm not, there is like some link between having this big Dolly scene with this Hannah and Dolly at the bar, which again was like an eight, 10 page scene, which kind of felt like the kind of centerpiece, um, in the Royals. And we'd sort of done that with the assistant. I knew that worked in the assistant. So there was something in that, but it was very, um, yeah, if, I honestly can't connect the two pros. It was so different. Also, it was so different working with Oscar in that kind of wild way that it was very, and yes, it was so measured and so organized and so precise. And the Royal was absolutely not that. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> and the way that this film was, as you say, there were more, more characters, more threads, more spinning plates. Do you think you'll continue like 
that in in your work to come? Like, do you think, I don't know the degree to which you've started to think about what comes next. Maybe you're just ex- exhausted from the process of making this film, but do, do you think you'll continue to expand and kind of uh, look for kind of bigger stories to tell or, or have, where, where do you think the next step is for you, Kitty? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I'm trying to figure out what it should look like and what I should do. And I'm getting sent a lot of things, but I don't think I'd wanted I think mostly I'll just probably write something and um yeah and Julia wants to do a third one Julia and I always talk about doing a third one like and what that if we were going to do a third one how could we completely blow it up and destroy it and do something different becomes kind of the question and so there's a lot of that I mean I don't know this was it was really fun working with a co-writer I didn't it took it on like I feel like I'm so hard on myself when it's just me and I'm just so just spend weeks hating myself and I think with playing around with Oscar was a lot more fun and the pressure was so less pressure in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It sort of depends on the pro it depends exactly on what I want to explore and how, and it's sort of, it'll, it'll hopefully I'll figure it out over the next few months when I get a few days off, but yeah. Yeah. Take some days off. Um, (laughs) you've earned them. Um, Kitty, thank you so much for this conversation. I adored this film and, uh, yeah, it's been great to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on script apart. Well, thanks for having me. It was great. Thanks a lot. been listening to scripts apart thank you so much for tuning in a reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow you can join us on patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart or clicking the link in today's show notes thanks again for joining us we'll see you next time Mm -hmm.